Welcome to the Catalyst Podcast. This episode, entitled, How Fortunate Are the Spiritual Zeros, was given on September 3rd, 2017, by Bethany Shea, in the series, The Mount. Uh, Turn with me to Matthew chapter 4, and I'm going to pray, and then we'll get started. So Jesus, we, um, we welcome you to this place, and we are excited to get into your word and to see what it means to be a disciple of you uh, and what it means to follow you throughout our entire lives in this community. And, and we pray that, uh, that your word will, will speak truth to our lives. If there's anything that's keeping us distracted from being present here, Lord, we, we release it before you and we let it, um, we ask that you hold those things for us and with us, Jesus. And, um, and we pray that we can receive what you have from us. We, we, also, we also pray for uh, the victims of Hurricane Harvey and what's going on out there. And we pray, um, we pray that your hand will just be all over the place there as it's been already, but, but that people can stand up and, and give in the ways that need to be given. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. That's my other announcement. It was on the e-blast. So uh, we are partnering with the school that meets here. There's a high school called NPA that meets here, and they're doing a big like diaper drive for for Hurricane Harvey. There's um, there's a lot of babies and old folks who need who need diapers, and there's just not enough of them. So uh, you can pick up a package of diapers. You can donate them over or bring them over to the church um, Tuesday through Thursday anytime, and they're going to ship them over there. All right. Cool. (laughs) So we just finished our series on the table. All summer long, we've been gathering outside, and we've been gathering around the table and talking about the scriptures, not all of them, but a lot of the scriptures that show Jesus eating meals with people or teaching with food as an example to, to help people understand what he's talking about. Um, we built a community garden sort of a thing in the back, so if you guys need any veggies, it's in the back, and the lettuce is out of control, so pick, pick a few pieces of lettuce, and um, you can glean back there. Uh, you know, and we, we made bread together with the kids, and it was just a really, I don't know, it was a really neat summer focusing on the table. Um, and now we are starting a new series on the Sermon on the Mount, and a lot of you are very familiar to the teachings of Jesus, his Sermon on the Mount. Uh, They are incredibly radical teachings, especially for the people that were listening in then. But if we think about today, they're also just as radical to us as well. So we're going to start with the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes are oftentimes a list of um, people try to put that list in order of like, oh, I need to do this one and this one and this one to receive blessing. If I just become more poor in spirit, if I just become more... um, Merciful, or if I just become more of a uh, person who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, or if I just mourn more, then I will become blessed. And I don't think that they're necessarily some sort of a list that we're supposed to obtain to receive blessing. It's more of the reality of, of God's heart for the people. That is what the Beatitudes show. It, it reveals God's heart for all people, regardless of a person's ability regardless of a person's educational status, um, 
it shows that the only qualifications needed for being a part of what God is doing in the world, which is called the kingdom of God, what God is doing in the world, is simply being human. Just being alive is Jesus is saying, yeah, you're alive. You get to be a part of what I'm doing here, what God is doing in the world. Um, and, it, and oftentimes what we see is that the Beatitudes, it looks like a bouncer at the door that's like checking to make sure that you're on the list. And so we, we like label it out like, okay, are you a poor in spirit? Okay, let's go to the next one and the next one and the next one. And we want to like check it off. But that's not what the Beatitudes are about at all. Um, so we're going to read through the Beatitudes for a second here, and then I just want you guys to sit with them, and then let's talk about what comes up first. If, if anything comes up for you, or if you've heard a teaching on it, or something that you have questions on, um, we are going to spend eight weeks on the Beatitudes. We're going to go one at a time, so we're not going to go through all of them today, but I wanted to sit with them for a minute, and then discuss it, and then we'll go into this, the scripture that we'll be looking at. So uh, Matthew chapter 5, it says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds... He went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So what, what comes up from that? Any questions or stirrings or anything that, that arises for you when, when Jesus says all these people are blessed? It's something that everybody can be a part of. I mean, yeah. It's not like we have to join a club or anything like that. It's like all those things are very yeah, very human. That's good, Ed. Thank you. Anything else? The position of Jesus when he said Yeah, crouching down like that? Because mm. he was sitting down. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Noah, what were you going to say? I was just going to say, um, you know, this passage, which is one of the most familiar, one of the few that I really know in the Bible is, has always for me stood for um, taking sides with the underdog. Mm. You know, I know taking sides may be a crude way, way to put it, but, but lifting up the underdog and turning the natural order on its head. Yeah. The little guys are going to inherit the earth, you know. Yeah. I always love that. <laughs> totally. Whenever I read this passage, I can't help but think of the scene in one of my favorite movies, Life of Brian. The (laughs) crowd is misunderstanding what's being said, and then based on that misunderstanding, going into a very deep theological direction, (laughs) literalism, and it's a beautiful scene. But it ends with the woman saying, oh, oh, he said the meek. Well, that's nice, because they seem to have an awfully hard time of it otherwise. (laughs) (laughs) And that sticks with me in that... 
aside from just the humor, uh, beautiful, brilliant humor there, that blessed doesn't necessarily mean what we think it means. Mm-hmm. It doesn't necessarily look like what we think it looks like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <coughs> because they do have an awfully hard time of it. Yeah. And that they aren't blessed. Right, mm-hmm. right. Yeah, that word blessed, it means like how fortunate are you or God's on the side of that type of person. Um, I guess I think of it more in the latter context yeah. where I think we tend to gravitate towards it being in the first there. Right. Material right. blessings. And right. Versus God being on, his, on our side. Totally, totally. Like what can I, what can I gain from this? Other translations yeah. often say happy. Happy, yep. And we think of you know, when we think of happy, we think of an internal thing. Mm. Or blessed is something external. Right. God blesses. Right. But, and so I'm happy as a result. Right. But, you know, both sides sit here. It's coming from God, mm. the end result of the good mm. That's good. So I, I want to go into a little bit of, of who Jesus was talking to. I want to set up this whole sermon on that way because we can't really quite understand all of this unless we realize who Jesus was talking to in the first place. So uh, turn with me back to chapter 4. We're going to begin in verse 12. Um, up to this point, Jesus has been born and he uh, is baptized by his cousin, John the Baptist. Um, and from there, he goes into the wilderness where he's tested or tempted or um, put on trial almost by the devil. And then from that point on, on verse 12, it says, When Jesus heard that John had been put into prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said to the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon possessed those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, 
and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So we'll stop there for now. I was a part of Catalyst for five years. I helped start it with Jason and then another couple named Dan and Rachel. Um, And we started it in 2006. And I was a part of the church for five years and I was teaching. I was preaching usually like once or twice a month. And and I was was in a meeting with our vision team. And the only people that um, were in the vision team that are still here is Roger. He was on our vision team. And Paul, who's not here today. But at this meeting, the vision team um, voted me in as a pastor at Catalyst. And I remember, like, I was was very firm in expressing how unnecessary it was to have that title. Like, nothing's going to change if I become a pastor. I'm still going to be greeting people. I'm still going to be preaching the word. I'm still going to, like, invite people into my home and disciple people. Nothing's changed. That title just will make me feel um, set apart from people. Like, I don't, I, I didn't want that sort of a title. Nothing would change, but um, I was also afraid that maybe the title would make me feel more important than I actually was as well. (laughs) But luckily, in in today's day and age, pastors aren't respected, so it's okay. (laughs) (laughs) But the team, this team of people, was insisting on calling me what I already was. They already saw me as that. The church already saw me as that. I just was very uncomfortable with that, with that title. And I can kind of imagine the disciples experiencing a similar, like, similar feeling. Because this area of Galilee, this, you know, Jesus is in Galilee. It says that he makes his home in Capernaum. He's from Nazareth, but he moves to this, this fishing village near Galilee. And in Luke, it says that he puts roots down. Like he says, this is my home. And so he's in this Galilean place. And this area is where the most holy and devout Jewish persons were born and bred. They were incredibly religious people. They, they perpetuated the conviction that the Hebrew scriptures weren't merely texts that you just open up on the Sabbath, the Sabbath Saturday with the people of community around you or, or reading it before bedtime. They believed that the scriptures were meant to be consumed. We're meant to be memorized. We're meant to be lived out wholeheartedly. And the people in this area of Israel, like they held the scriptures with such high regard that they expected every single child to attend school, male and female. It wasn't just a male thing back then. And in the school, on that first day of school, each child would receive their new slate. And on that slate, they would write. They would have the Hebrew alphabet written down. There would be two verses written down from the Hebrew Bible. Uh, one was Leviticus one one, and the other one was in Deuteronomy. And they were basically similar, or it just basically said that the law came from Moses, and it's something we need to uphold. And then the other thing written down on the slate was the Torah is my calling. Just that those words. The Torah is my calling. The Torah is the first five books in the Old Testament. And the teacher, the kids would be holding their slates out, and the teacher would then walk around the class, drizzling honey on all of the slates. And then these kids would then have to lick the honey off the slates, and I can just imagine it dripping down their arms. And I was going to have honey sticks for all you guys, but I totally forgot. So this week, go get some honey, and don't put it on the Bible. It doesn't lick off as easily. (laughs) It would be a mess. It would be such a mess. The kids would love it. 
That's what they're doing today. They're just, no, just kidding. <laughs> they're eating angel food cake. It's easier. Uh, but they would drip this honey all over the slates. The kids would lick it off. And the reason that they would lick the honey off the slates was not only because the Psalms and the Proverbs talk about how important it is that children are trained up in the way they should go, which isn't so much of like disciplining a kid. It's literally about having a child know the word of God, having it part of their life. So that way when they're old, they don't depart from it. But the thing that was so important to this comes out of Ezekiel chapter three. You're welcome to turn there or you can just listen to me, read it. Ezekiel was one of the prophets, one of the mouthpieces for God. And God is talking to Ezekiel in chapter 3, verse 1. And, and it says, God said to me, Son of man, eat what is before you. Eat this scroll, then go and speak to the people of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he gave me the scroll to eat. Then he said to me, Son of man, eat this scroll I am giving you and fill your stomach with it. So I ate it. And it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. I love that so much. Just like such a clear, beautiful picture of consuming God's word. That it tastes so good. So these kids, that would be their very first day of school. These kids, as, as soon as they could walk, essentially, as soon as they could talk, they were there in school consuming the word of God. And this is the area of Galilee where Jesus found his disciples. And an area where every child's dream would be to become a disciple. And a disciple is a student. And their teacher is called a rabbi. And it wasn't so much of like a clocking in and clocking out. It wasn't going to school and being at school for the day and then going home and being with your family. If you became a disciple, it was an entire life situation. You gave your entire life, every single bit of you, to being and studying and and underneath this rabbi. Now, these kids would go to school at a young age, and they would all learn the Torah. They would all learn the Bible, the, the Hebrew Bible. And then eventually, the best of them would go on to the next level. And the kids that weren't quite the best would then go into the family trade. And that next level would be an even deeper level. They would have to memorize the entire Hebrew scriptures. They would have to be so engrossed in this learning. And then the very small percentage of the best of those would go on to a higher learning of education. And the rest of the kids would then go into the family trade. They would learn the family trade. And usually by that point, girls were then living in um, their homes, their family homes, learning how to be homemakers. And they were never given the opportunity to be disciples during that point. But the very best of the best, this very small percentage of men, of of young men, young or older boys, they would then become disciples. And the only way that they could become a disciple was they had to find a rabbi who was accepting disciples. And they would have to go to that rabbi and ask that rabbi if they could study under the rabbi. And if the rabbi believed that that person could be just like him, he would say, yeah, follow me. Let's do this. So if you think about it, these guys, these disciples that Jesus found, they were working the family trade, right? They weren't the best of the best. These disciples would study under their rabbi for the rest of their lives. 
And eventually, when they knew everything the rabbi knew, they would then become a rabbi and would seek disciples. So this type of living, this type of living in Galilee, it, it, was, it was vibrant, it was alive, it was a sort of community that was centered around the joy of God's word. It was a privilege to live out. It wasn't legalistic or binding. It was just an absolute joy. And this is the area that Jesus grew up near and the area he made his home in where people loved God with all their hearts, mind, and strength, and soul. Like, the people in this area living in Galilee, they, they, lived, um, they lived communally in these things called insulas. And so it was basically a house, uh, and they'd have, like, a kind of a fence of sorts around the house. And they would live with all their family members, all their relatives. Like, can you imagine living with all your relatives. <laughs> and so if, if your daughter got married uh, or if your son got married, he would bring his, his wife to live there. Um, you'd have your cousins and your aunts and uncles and your grandparents and they would just build rooms upon the house. And there's, there's scripture about you know, Jesus saying, um, my father's house has many rooms. And it's that communal living, this space that it's not that God's like, oh, this is the amount of rooms we have. It's this idea that they're are always more spaces to be added on to this huge, vast community that God is that God is growing. So these people are living in these insulas, and this area, while it was incredibly family focused and incredibly communal, and how important that was, it wasn't the most important thing. The most important thing for the people living in this area of Galilee was God's word, was Scripture was following it, consuming it, loving God. Disciples and rabbis became almost like their own kind of family in a way because they would leave, the disciples would leave this community and start living into a new kind of community. They walked together. They consumed God's word like honey. They knew who they were, who they were becoming together. And what's interesting about Jesus and his disciples uh, was where he found them, what I was saying before. Like, they were working their family trade. They already understood their lot in life. They already understood that they didn't make it to the top. This is what they were going to do with the rest of their lives. They, they knew that they weren't the best of the best. But yet, when a rabbi called them, invited them to follow him, they didn't hesitate. And I remember when I was a kid and reading through this, I would be like, why would they leave everybody behind? Like, their poor dad has to take care of all of those nets on his own now. That's kind of a messed up thing. But for the dad, it would be the most incredible honor for his children to not have made it this far to be invited into this great area of service. He would have been like, yeah, yeah, I got this. You go. I got this. They didn't hesitate. They dropped everything they were doing for this great honor and this great invitation that they had dreamed about most of their lives. There was someone who believed that this B-team group of young men could be like their rabbi. Amen. Yeah, seriously, Marta. Me too. When I was writing this last night, I was kind of weepy. I was like, oh, Jesus, you're so good. <laughs> and I wonder, like, I wonder um, how many times they would be in conversation. Because, you know, I mean, okay, we read this scripture and it feels like, oh, overnight he was now speaking the Sermon on the Mount. But he was probably, Jesus and his disciples, it says that they went throughout Galilee. I'm guessing that they probably stuck in that space for quite some time. 
They had months and months, perhaps even a year together by the time he gets the Sermon on the Mount. And the reason that I wonder about that is because the word spread. Large crowds came. That takes time. Like, they couldn't text each other and say, get over here, this guy's dope. Like, they had to, they had to move the language around and get it out there. So I, I wonder, like, during this time that, they, that these kids, these young men are following Jesus, I wonder how many times people would be like, hey, so you're that disciple. You're a disciple of Jesus. Is that true? And I wonder how many times that title of disciple made them uncomfortable because they didn't earn it. They didn't get there by their own merit and their own strength and their own expertise. It was something that was placed upon them that they had to kind of live into. Something that Jesus said, this is who you are. And they're like, okay, let's see if that's true. That, I wonder how much it was uncomfortable for them. Kind of like for me when, when, when people were saying that, no, you're going to be a pastor here at Catalyst. I really wanted to shrug that title off because I didn't feel like I earned it. I didn't go to seminary. I, I, didn't, I, I grew up feeling like women weren't allowed to be pastors, so why would you place that title upon me? I mean, all of that made me so uncomfortable, but yet my team insisted on calling me what I already was. And Jesus insisted on calling these men what they already were. But the tricky thing about titles is that they can lead to entitlement. There's a reason that that word is in there. And I wonder how many times the disciples were like, oh yeah, I did make it. I did get here. Maybe not. That's me like pushing stuff into there. That's not in the Bible necessarily. But, but you know, we, we work hard for our titles most of the time, right? Like, we work hard for the title of doctor or professor or pastor, business owner, whatever you want to put in there. And, and that's how we, we get our sense of self-worth and definition of who we are. Um, and we, we try to, we, we kind of settle into our titles as well. Like, almost like it's been there all along, but really you just, you just graduated from college. Are you kidding me? But you haven't done this your whole life. And I'm guessing that we do this most often because it's how we gain our sense of self-worth or how we gain our sense of identity in a lot of ways by our titles that we put on ourselves. And when I was younger, I was, I was very unsure of who I was as a person. I was incredibly shy, um, and I felt like I needed a title or a definition to claim who I was, to, to, um, to figure out who I was or help, help other people figure out who I, who I am. And so I would claim um, the music I listened to. I know that's not really a title, but when you're in high school or whatever, like you're kind of defined by your music or by who you hang out with, um, the interests I had. And then later on, I, I, I felt like I was becoming defined by the career I'd chosen or the parenting practice I s subscribed to and how that would define me as a person. And perhaps maybe if I label all of these things on this list that I have behind my name, maybe, maybe you will think I'm important enough or worthy enough of your time. And I remember sinking so far into this way of thinking of how other people perceived to see me as, how, how, I, how I perceived other people to see me as, right? Because it's not, you didn't see me that way, it was just how I thought you saw me my whole life. That's how I found my self-worth. And it wasn't until I began to receive this invitation that Jesus offered me of discipleship, where Jesus was inviting me into it, 
where he said to me, I think, Bethany, I think you can be like me. I think you can come and follow me. I think you've got what it takes. I've, I've created you to be able to do this. And it wasn't until I was able to actually take that on and receive that, is that that's when I started to believe the truth of who Jesus had always said I was. It was nothing I could earn. It was just something that I was meant to be, and I had to receive it. So when I look at this teaching of Jesus, this like radical teaching of Jesus that we'll get into over the course of these next number of months, I used to assume that this teaching was for like okay, verse 24 in chapter 4, it was those suffering with severe pain, the demon possessed, those with seizures, the paralyzed. I used to think it was the former demon possessed or the former healed, handicapped or the sick that Jesus was communicating to, but Jesus is clearly speaking to his disciples, to these people that he called. And I wonder if it's because the title they didn't earn, but now have begun to live into, could shape them into a person of entitlement. Because growing up in Galilee, where only the best of the best held such a title as disciple, um, I, wonder, I wonder if that was something that could eventually shape their heart to receive that huge title that the world was placing, their world was placing on disciple, instead of this title that Jesus was giving to disciple. I wonder if Jesus needed to explain this calling of discipleship that was, while incredibly honoring, was also one of humility. Maybe the title of disciple wasn't meant to place them on a pedestal like their, their community had always made it out to be. Maybe Jesus was trying to help them understand that following the rabbi would bring them to a place where the poor in spirit are even included, where the spiritual zero are given a new name, where the poor in spirit is included in seeing God's kingdom arrive. There's a theologian by the name of Dallas Willard, and he has this amazing book uh, that he wrote, and um, I'm blanking on the name of it. Mom, do you remember the name of that book? The Divine Conspiracy. Oh, it's so good. And he talks about this beatitude of blessed are the poor in spirit, and he calls it this. He says, blessed are the spiritual zeros, the spiritually bankrupt, deprived and deficient, the spiritual beggars, those without a wisp of religion when the kingdom of heaven comes upon them. I wonder if Jesus called his disciples around him, called his disciples to that place, because his ministry would always be for those who didn't earn it and certainly never deserved it. I wonder if he crouched down on the hillside that day and he's speaking to his spiritual zeros of disciples that probably want to live into this reality that they now uh, have now deserve almost like, oh, well, he called me into it, so I must deserve this. And obviously, we, it's like this weird paradigm where do we deserve and yet it's all grace. But I'm wondering if he's like declaring that they were blessed, they were fortunate, lucky is another word, happy is one, the one that God's on the side of, and this great crowd of healed people, of somewhat sick people still, are like 
trying to bend their ear in, trying to get in and listen in what Jesus is saying here. And, and, and they're listening in and they're able to say, me too. Not just these disciples, me too. Because I must be included then in this very large tent that seemed to exclude me before. If these disciples, these guys around Jesus that Jesus is talking to, and, and I was just healed by Jesus, the, the, that tax collectors in that group, and, and these fishermen, they're included, and, and that zealot, that guy who's always doubting and always super cynical, he's totally around Jesus right now too. And that guy who seems super shifty, that swindler, eventual betrayer, they're included in God's kingdom of love? Like, that leaves no one out. I must be included too. And I love that so much because these disciples and those listening in, none of them earned it. No one was the best of the best. They were the barely making it. They just knew that they were invited and they couldn't do anything but say, yeah, I'm in. I mean, none of us here have earned like such a great title of disciple and nor that we deserve that sort of a title. Yet Jesus bent down on a hillside and said, blessed are the poor in spirit for God's dream of the world is theirs. And it wasn't a call towards humility necessarily that, that comes with it for sure, but it was more of a declaration that anybody that you would have put on the list of people that we could keep out of the kingdom is here. They're all saying, Jesus is saying, they're all here. You're all in it. It's like he's throwing open the doors, this blessed are the poor in spirit, throwing open the doors and like duct taping the bouncer's mouth who would check and make sure your name is on the list. And he's welcoming everybody to this table and he's saying, you are so lucky. Come be a part of this party. So that's what I have for this passage for today. Next week is blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And I know a lot of us have felt that before in our lives. And I'm excited to see what happens with that, what comes out from that teaching. Any thoughts before we go into our time of communion, our time of response with singing together and taking the Lord's Supper and inviting the kids back in? This was also in the Valley of the Gentiles. In the Valley of the Gentiles, totally. So it wasn't, it was so inclusive. It wasn't yep. just for those who were following the law. Yes, yes, I know. That was, that is so profound there. I think we need to keep that in mind. Yeah. That Jesus really did want to be inclusive. And yeah, yep. And I think in so many ways, we've sort of makeshifted that into something that would not be recognizable and wouldn't be right. wanted. So. Right, right. I mean, how many of us would would kick Jesus out of our church? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Noah. I'm really struck by your elucidation of this passage that I have right now see it as, as being I, mean, I don't know if physically he was speaking in a way that the, the white crowd could hear him but I imagine that he was that he was speaking to his disciples but that these people below were hearing it and it's, 
and it's really like two messages. Mm. Whole, this, this, um, is that you know these disciples have been raised up, they're mm-hmm. physically up on the hill, they're out disciples. Mm. Yeah, remember those. Mm. You know, you're not, you haven't really heard that title, or not about learning. It's not for for us to be above the rest, and and so he's sort of mm. putting them in their place with humility, even as he's dignifying all these miserable lepers, and sick people, and, totally. and barely making it who have come to mm-hmm. to get to. to to have a vision of hope that includes them. Right. Um, I just love the inversion of, of mm. the normal order of things that is comes out from the two levels of this of the message. Yeah. That's good. The inversion, I like that. I think also by mm-hmm. people sitting down just trying to get on their life. Totally. On top of the mountain so they can see him. The sitting down so it lowers his level of importance, I think. That's how uh, that's how the rabbis would teach back then. Is they would they would crouch down and um, and even in the synagogues, oftentimes they would um, there would always be somebody who would who would bring in the word that they would like whatever scroll was going to be chosen that day. They would like bring it in, but they wouldn't just like pick it off the the wall and then bring it to the person to read it. They would like they, it, it was like a dancing thing. They would dance it in, so it'd be like and they're like bringing in the scroll, like this is the word. God for today, yeah. I mean, it was just like this whole big party, and then they'd crouch down and be close to it and hear it, and like almost like that consuming the word of God because it was the best part of their day. I love it. <laughs> so good. Yeah, Marta. Um, the three things that stick out for me is that this, um, the Beatitudes, like I actually read the Sermon on the Mount, mm-hmm. which is a book about the Beatitudes. Oh, yeah. And I read it, and then it's like I realized that, you know, at times, you know, I've been the prideful, thinking that I'm not me, and I've been, you know, the beggar, whatever, mm. and like not liking that position, uh, which I found myself in like the past five years, and even, you know, just this semester. But that's really kind of like what God wants, mm. because He, like, I don't know if you guys experience this, like, you cross the race or you do something, it's in our nature to be like, yeah, at least I am. And then it's like, wait, no, that was God. Mm-hmm. That was God's glory. And so constantly, um, you know, to be able to give thanks. Mm-hmm. And like Pastor Jason has said to me, you know, when you ask for help, I, I struggle asking for help. Mm. Um, because I feel like I'd rather have a hand up than a hand out. And so um, he said, no, you know, it's like when you ask for help, if people help you, that's for them too. And so I think the Beatitudes is so powerful. Um, I don't remember everything about it, but it resonates with what you're saying. That it's like, wow, like you eat the word. And it's like, you know, when I was reading that, I was like in a good space. But the other thing, which is the third one, it's about inclusion and mm-hmm. bringing it back to yeah. me today, right now, and figuring out who I include. And every one of us excludes someone yep. for some reason. And that, I think, is so at the core of that message. Right. Oftentimes when we look at this, it's easy for us to say, oh, look, all of, all of them, they're welcomed in. So I should welcome them too. But, but really we have to start with ourselves. Like Jesus has given his entire life for each of us. We're all spiritually bankrupt people. We're all like, 
we're, you know, in sinners in need of God's grace. And Jesus is just like, yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome. You're welcome. And when we can see that all of a sudden we're able to live into this huge calling that God, that Jesus places on us and says that we are totally able to do like Jesus is, is a, equips us to do these things. But, um, but oftentimes it is like that place. I, I think often if we, if we look at somebody else who needs something, but we don't see the need in ourselves, then it comes from this place of almost arrogance sometimes instead of, well, I've already been, I've, I've already received God's grace. I'm receiving God's grace all the time. So I'm just going to keep giving grace. Any last thoughts? Oh, sorry. Good well, I just, I really appreciated that, the context of, of where the disciples grew up. Like, yeah. I never, I didn't know that. And, uh, and you don't know, we don't know a ton about the disciples, right? So I kind of always read that differently, like, mm. that they were fishermen. I always wondered, like, why they, why they really followed Jesus. Mm-hmm. That provides so much context. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I like how you said, like, it was so communal and vibrant, and that there was probably this part of them that, like, like you said, that had accepted their lot in life, and they, they were actually probably really content, like, yeah. in a lot of ways. They were probably like, yeah, this is what I do. Totally. I'm happy doing that, and I, I kind of let go of, you know, the childish things of whatever, my earlier dreams, and right. I'm just going to be content and do what I do. And I just think, like, then that kind of flipped the way I see this whole scene play out, right? Like, then it was like, Jesus walks in, and this is, for me, it's like real life. He shows us another glimpse of the Father, right? Mm. Like this becomes like a, a father-son moment where mm. he's like, okay, I know, you, I know what you really desire. I know you, you're happy. You say you're happy, you accept it, but you, you gave up something. And now I just want to blow your mind. Like, yeah. I just want, I want to give that to you. And I just think yeah. that's so cool. Like, yeah. Like, we, as, as fathers, we always want to do that for our kids. We want to, like, see into them and see what they really desire mm. and find a way to, to give them more than they even could imagine. And, and we've seen, I've seen that play out in my life, and it's just, you feel so humble. You're just yeah. like, God, like, how did, you, how did you care enough to know about just me, that you knew that was deep inside me, mm. that I wanted that? And then when the time was right, you just want to give that to you. Mm. And it's really, I think it's really cool. That's rad. It's good. Yeah, Russ. The disciples, they were, they were, they were all designed to be disciples. Mm-hmm. And your design, and my design, and the whole world's design is to also the same design. Mm-hmm. It's no different. It's mm-hmm. good. Yeah. I love how it wasn't this huge, um, it wasn't like Jesus was like, hey, you, all the people that are listening, hey, you're all my disciples. He was like, you guys right here are my disciples, and you're going to go make more disciples when I'm gone. You will then be making more disciples and making more disciples, because it's true. Every person is designed, but it, it takes that small group sort of space. Yeah, Noah. I have a question. Uh, you know, some of these some of this list um, is clearly about making a distinction between one group of people and another. You know, when you say blessed are the peacemakers, you're clearly recognizing that some people are not peacemakers and some people aren't. You know, mm-hmm. and, and I guess that goes for many of these if you interpret a certain way. But 
I'm sure it's not an accident that the first one is blessed are the poor in spirit. And mm -hmm. I guess I'm wondering if that one is intended to be distinguishing all of you, all of us, me, we're poor in spirit. That's the nature of, you know, um, is that distinguishing some from others who are not poor in spirit? I mean, I guess yeah. that's, that's really, um, and it's the fact that this is the first one, yeah. I'm sure it's not an accident. And that's, so I don't know what to make of that question. Yeah, I think because Jesus was giving this sermon in a place where uh, religion and and following God's law was so highly revered and also um, it's just a very important thing, he needed to help everybody understand that even those who have no idea what God's word says or no idea what God's plan is for the world or anything like that, they're still included in God's kingdom. They, they still are the ones that God declares are blessed. So I think it's just a, it's like that level playing field. Like everybody's included. So it's, it's not that he's saying those people who are great in spirit who have studied, you know, right. who know the, the, the word of God. Right. He's not excluding them. He's just no. saying, you know, no. all of you who are poor in spirit compared to them, actually you get to join just like that. Totally. Yeah. That's how I see it. Yeah. Well, we're going to go into our time of communion just because it's getting later here in the day and everybody's getting probably hungry for bread and juice, of course. Um, <laughs> uh, we do practice open communion here at Catalyst, and so whenever you're ready, you're welcome to come back, and I will give you a piece of bread that represents Christ's body broken for us and dip it in the juice that represents Christ's blood shed on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. Um, that our sins are not counted against us, but have been that we've been set free because of what Jesus has done for us. And so uh, there's also, uh, we'll sing three songs together. Is it three songs, Ray? Okay, three songs, and the kids will come in, and um, then we'll close our time with a blessing together. So let me pray. Uh, Jesus, um, what a great teaching this is, and I know that there's so much more. It goes deeper and deeper, um, and I'm really thankful for that, Lord. I'm glad to see what you'll be doing through this teaching, um, and may it just bring us closer to you and closer to each other. We love you, and we thank you for uh, your sacrifice on the cross, the, the bread and the juice, your body and blood, doing something for us that we could never do for ourselves, nor, do we, nor can we ever earn it. That is just your grace. We love you, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. For more information about ways that you can be involved with Catalyst, please visit our website at provokechange.org. Until next time, continue loving God, loving our neighbors, and loving each other.